Tonight we're on page 25, and we're in There's a Solution, and we covered we covered uh, 24 and 25 last week, which has on page 24 the problem that we have no defense against alcohol, drinking, sober, none, without God. And page 25 is There's a Solution. And I went through that in great detail. Um, I thought about one other thing. Um, um, when we looked at this, it says on the bottom of page 25, if you're seriously alcoholic, they believe there's no middle of the road solution. Now, uh, ask yourself, am I in the middle of the road solution? And then it says, if life was becoming impossible, anybody have that? And then you pass into a region from which there's no return through human aid. You only have two alternatives. So the one alternative is going to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your intolerable situation as best you could, and the other to accept spiritual help. Now there's some powerful information in these lines. One is to go on to the bitter end you have to blot out the consciousness of your intolerable situation. And you cannot see the reality of the truth of your existence. Or you see it and you just blot it out. And if you do that, then you won't come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as they had been living it, which is in the first paragraph. And until you come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as you've been living it, you're not going to give up. You won't surrender. And there are two things you have to believe in AA. The first thing you have to believe is the hopelessness and futility of life as you've been living it. And you have to come to that first before the second thing you have to believe that there's a power greater than you that can relieve that situation. And you won't, a lot of people can come to the first belief, but it's hard for them to believe that there's a power greater than themselves that can help them. That's why there's a whole chapter in here on the agnostic. But if you don't come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of your life as you're living it, then you're going to blot it out and you'll go on to the bitter end. And then how do you know if you're in the middle of the road between blotting it out and accepting spiritual help? Well, it says on there's a solution. Are you doing self-searching? Each day are you searching? We talked about steps 10 to 11, but 4 through 9, leveling of pride. Are you, have you been able to look at a thorough fourth and fifth step? Look at six and seven, your character defects. Have you confessed your shortcomings to yourself, to God and another human being? Are you making restitution amends? And then we talked yesterday, are you doing the daily prayer and meditation to stay close to God? And if you're not, then maybe you're in the middle of the road. Because remember, half measures avail you what? Nothing. Nothing. And you can't do... You can't do a thorough four through nine and then stop and not live in 10 to 11. You won't be able to stay in fit spiritual condition like Judd said. So this is a constant program of surrender. And then once we, when we actually surrender, and Lori made a, a great statement, is we surrender constantly turning away from me to God. And this is, uh, we're going to look at this uh, Saturday. This was the, the spirit, the golden key that Emmett Fox talked about prayer and is in the book uh, Love is the Greatest Thing by uh, Henry Drummond on 1 Corinthians and how AA, the way AA saw spiritual growth was turning away from my thinking 
to turning to God and God's thinking and direction, which is a little different than some of the, the Old Testament was turning to God and loving God, but we turn away from us and we turn to God and then we have God help us be as he would have us. And we're going to look at that tonight. So I thought that's uh, some good stuff. So now they talk about to accept spiritual help. And then it says, this we did because we honestly wanted to. We were willing to make the effort on page 26. Now, we're all here today because of what happened in the next uh, few two pages. And without this, I don't know if we would have been here. Uh, but God had this plan. God put these people together. And God had a plan that he didn't want alcoholics to suffer anymore. So he put all these things into play so that we're here today, we have this book, we have this program. And I have the letters here on, uh, for Best of the Grapevine. I'm going to have uh, Patty, uh, I'm going to Xerox them and have them out for next week. This is the letters from Dr. Young, Bill W. to Dr. Young, and Dr. Young to Bill W. And we're going to see the significance of Dr. Young. And he wrote these letters. These letters were exchanged in 1961. But now we're back in 19... 31, and there was a certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, it's describing us, right? But for years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. Now, it doesn't say why, but we assume if it's an AA, he had a problem with alcohol, right? And so he was a, someone who had high ability, good sense, and from a very, very wealthy family in Providence, uh, Rhode Island, but he floundered from sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist because that was the only hope that people had with this, this problem was to go to a psychiatrist. But as we've read from Dr. Silkworth, they did not have the answer. Um, he had consulted the best-known American, and then he had gone to Europe. He tried to see, uh, to see Freud, but Freud was too busy. Now, uh, we don't know if that's true, but the, Joe and Charlie like to say that if he'd gone to Freud, uh, we would all be on the couch, and we probably wouldn't be here today. But he went to Dr. Young, and that was a, a God thing. And Dr. Young was a prominent psychiatrist, and he was in Switzerland, and he prescribed for him. And though experience had made him skeptical, anybody relate to that? He because he had been to other psychiatrists, right? He finished his treatment with unusual confidence. So he was very confident. He had self-confidence. And his physical and mental condition was unusually good. And here's what he had. He had a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind. Now, we know now that the profound knowledge of my inner workings of my alcoholic mind just leads me to more knowledge that's going to be wrong and kill me. <laughs> self-knowledge, remember, cannot fix this. The more we know about self, the worse we get. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of knowledge do we need to, to recover from alcoholism? Knowledge of God. We have to have knowledge of God, which produces faith. And then faith produces trust. And then faith changes us. And... Uh, uh, I'm going to read that meditation that Gary sent me, this meditation thing, and I read it today, and it was just all about this. So 
hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Anybody relate to that? Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. Now, there's all sorts of stories how far he actually made it out of Switzerland, but he never made it back to the United States. And uh, he was drunk in a very short time because knowledge of my, my alcoholic mind, knowledge is not sufficient. All that does is give me more knowledge that separates me from God. And remember, if you have the mind of an alcoholic, which he's going to describe, you have no power not to drink. And it says, nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. Now, why did he relapse, even though he had profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind? Because he's an alcoholic. And what happens when you're sober and you're an alcoholic? You have the disease of alcoholism. You have a spiritual malady. You're separated from God. You live self-centered. You live in anger and fear. You have shame and guilt. And what happens? Your emotions build up. You seek the ease and comfort of what? Alcohol. Alcohol. And you don't even say that. You don't say, gee, I'm separated from God. I'm self-centered. I'm full of anger, fear. I'm going to have a drink. That's not what happens. You just, your mind tells you you don't like the way you feel. And before you know it, you're drinking. You don't even know what happened. Because you have no power once that thinking is established to keep from doing it. Remember? And so he returned to the doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. Now, it's very interesting. I was studying this today. Believe it or not, I do read these pages before the meeting and look at it and think about it. Sometimes I listen to people. But he wanted to regain not control of drinking, but control of self. He could not control his self from drinking. Now, that, that would make you come to believe in the hopelessness of futility of your life if you can't control your ability to drink. And he seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems. Now, we don't know if that's true, but he could not keep from drinking. Now, we know when we actually look at our, at our situation and our lives, when we do the four-step, we see how we were not rational, well-balanced in our thinking. But now, at this point in the book, they don't want to deal with that. They want you to hammer home to the new person the idea you cannot keep from drinking and you're going to need a power greater than self to do that. And that's what the first 58 pages are designed to do. And it says he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? And he begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth. And he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society and would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. This was a great physician's opinion. Now, I was thinking about this. You know, to tell somebody that they're utterly hopeless, um, that may be the only way you can reach an alcoholic. But uh, until the alcoholic believes he's utterly hopeless, they won't change. And I, I dealt in my whole life with dealing with hopeless situations all day long. And I don't think I ever told a patient that they were hopeless. You never want to take away people's hope. But you never, you never lie to them and you try to give them um, reality with love. That's hard to do. 
And the people who didn't do well with their hopeless situations are the ones who had no relationship with God. And they couldn't accept the hopelessness of their situation, so they kept doing more and more things that actually caused harm to themselves. And so it got to the point where I would tell the patients I had no power anymore to change the way this disease will be, but we have the power to help you deal with it and have the best life you can with it. And then they'd want to try to do things to change the disease. And I'd say, well, you know, the serenity prayer says that God has to give me the serenity to know what I can change and know what I need to accept. I said, now I can give you a million drugs. We got a whole bunch of drugs up there and tell you, well, this may help you. But then I'm trying to change something that I need to accept and I just do harm. And, and, and if you think about that, and then a lot of them wouldn't accept that and they'd want to go elsewhere and I'd wish them well and I'd tell them, you know, I hope that they can find what they need and this and that. So they kept getting treatments that weren't going to help them and they lost the quality of life and the serenity with their situation that they may have had. So it's, it's hard when we try to change things we, we need to accept. And one of the things we need to accept is to believe that we have a hopeless and futile condition of mind and body. And once we accept that, then we can see what can we change. And we, and we work the steps so we change our personality and our relationship with God. I don't know if that makes any sense. But um, he was utterly hopeless. And we tell people, the book tells you you're not going to be able to live without drinking. The book tells you if you have this, you are utterly hopeless. It says in the foreword, we had a hopeless condition of mind and body. Now, the interesting thing about that is that they're writing that they had a hopeless condition of mind and body, but it couldn't have been hopeless because they're writing the book. See, see, an alcoholic is hopeless until he surrenders and until he seeks God and he's still living on his own way, he's hopeless. And we can't get anybody to change that. If you ever tried to tell, help somebody who's new and they just won't give up on themselves. And so it's a gift. And it says he could never regain his position in society. He would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard. This was the great physician's opinion. But the man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster. But here's the, there's always, they tell you the good news, and they always give you a warning label. So here's the warning label provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. So I was trying to think, what was the certain simple attitude that I have to maintain if I were to live anywhere in the world and not be confined? Well, I, I think a simple attitude for me is that I need to go constantly from my self-centered thinking to God-centered thinking. And I have to constantly watch when I get back into self and stop and ask God to change the way I think and get back to him and be as he would have me. And so if I maintain that attitude all day long, then I'm surrendering my self-centeredness constantly, seeking God-centeredness. And that's really what steps 10 and 11 is all about, how we maintain a fit spiritual condition, which gives us a daily reprieve. So, it's, so they're writing, some of our alcoholic readers may think they cannot do without spiritual help. Anybody think that way at any point? Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. Now, how can you tell if you think you can do this without spiritual help? 
Are you doing steps four through nine? Have you done them? Are you living in 10, 11, and 12? Are you doing daily prayer and meditation? Are you constantly surrendering, like Lori said, all day long and watching for resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, or fear? Because it's very subtle, because you can come in here and be completely defeated and think you're hopeless, and you're done, and you want to do the deal, and you're, you're doing it, and then all of a sudden the ego rebuilds. And then you stop doing it. You stop going to meetings. You stop praying. You stop meditating. You don't call your sponsor. You start taking control of your life. And so it's very, it's very important that we talk about daily surrender. We have to daily surrender that we have a hopeless condition of mind and body without God. And then we have to constantly seek. If not, it gets subtle. But over time, now, you know how you know when you're, when you're doing that? You don't feel good. Things aren't going well. You're full of anger and fear. You know, you're, you're, you're getting mad at everybody. Life isn't going well. Well, then you stop and you say, I'm, I've gotten off the beam. I have to get back on the beam with God. I have to do the steps. So we always have the option, but we have, God gave us free will so we can separate from him whenever we want. And that's the danger of this disease. And so it says, the doctor said, now here's the key. You have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Right, but yet this guy recovered. So we, we want to read some more, don't we? Now, what is the mind of a chronic alcoholic? How do you know you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic? Well, you have a mind of the chronic alcoholic when you can't see the truth about alcohol. And when you don't have a daily reprieve. And when you can't see uh, recoil from alcohols from a hot flame. Right? And when you're in conflict with everybody and everyone. Now, is there a paragraph in the big book that tells you when you have recovered from a mind of a chronic alcoholic? I've read it 18 trillion times. Let me give you a guess. It's after page 84. So let's look at what the mind of a recovered alcoholic looks like. Is, that, is this a good idea? Yeah. It says, on the bottom of page 84, uh, the, that paragraph, oh. right, Roman, calm down. Uh, we read the paragraph with step 10. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it again. I've only read it 18 trillion times and one. Uh, it says, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. We're not in conflict with the world. This time, sanity will have returned. We can see the truth about things. I'm seldom interested in liquor. If tempted, I recoil from it from a hot flame. I react sanely and normally and would find that this has happened automatically. This is the recovered promises from an alcoholic mind. I have a new attitude towards liquor, and it's been given me. It's been given me from God. It doesn't, no effort, thought, it just comes. I just have this attitude. You can't explain how it comes. It just, you do the work, you get through steps four through nine, you're living in step 10, and this just comes. You're not fighting it, neither are you avoiding temptation. You've been placed in a position of neutrality by God. You're safe and protected. You're not even sworn off. You don't have to. The problem has been removed. How's that? These promises really should be read at every meeting. These are the recovered promises. It does not exist for me. I don't have to be cocky nor afraid, and that is their experience. Now, here's the thing. Here's the warning. That is their experience and that is how they react as long as what? They keep in fit spiritual condition. So you have to be in constant fit spiritual condition to be recovered. So recovered 
is not you recovered and you're done. You're not cured. You're recovered. Recovered is a state. So you can go from recovered to unrecovered pretty quickly. And if you're unrecovered enough, then you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic, and then you'll drink again. So you see how that relates? And then it says, is there no exception? Yes, there is. Exceptions to cases of yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Now, I don't know if he actually wrote this, because I have the letters here, and he couldn't remember the exact words he gave to uh, Rowan Hazard, but he described what he told him, and I'm not sure I really understand it. I'm going to have to study it. It's a lot of psycho psychological uh, terms, but he was talking that they have a total change in their personality, and it comes from without, without, it doesn't come from rational thinking. It comes from a, a, a source greater than themselves, a spiritual source. So Dr. Young was the one that gave us a solution to our alcoholism. It's a spiritual change, an experience of the spirit that changes you. And what does it change? It's a huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, which is another word for change. When Joe and Charlie read this, they read each line, then the other guy says change. A huge emotional displacement rearrangement because we're not living on our self-centeredness anymore. We're trying to seek God, right? And it says ideas, emotions, and attitudes, <clears throat> which were once the guiding forces of our life, are suddenly cast to one side. Now that's a change, and what the ideas, emotions, and attitudes are all my old ideas about what I needed to be okay, what I needed to be successful, what I needed to have for to be happy. And I had to cast them aside, and I had to have a new guiding force, the vision of God's will for me, how God wants me to be. And that's what I had to carry. A new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. How can I be a service to God and my fellows? Do you see this? In fact, I've been trying to produce such emotional rearrangement within you. Many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but never with an alcoholic of his description. See, therapy won't help us. Therapy just gives us more understanding of our self-centeredness, but it won't change us. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved. Now, if you have other problems, I'm not saying therapy isn't helpful. Don't, don't say that, but for what we have, therapy alone may not provide the spiritual experience. So he thought he could go to church. That was great. Anybody pray and then drink that day? Pray to God and drink? Anybody give their life to the Lord, whatever Lord it is, and be saved and then still drink? Yeah, you see, because there's a difference, and that's where I'm going to talk about the change in pray and the relationship with God that AA talks about. Because AA talks about there's no terms between you and God. There's, it's all inclusive. The path is open to all men. All we have to do is turn away from ourselves and turn to God. But we have to take the actions to do that. And unless we take the actions, we can't, we can't succeed. And so uh, here was the terrible dilemma which I found, found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which as we have already told you, made him a free man. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna just review a little bit of the history of how Roland and all this came to us today, and then we'll pick up with this next week, okay? So Roland Hazard, went back and he actually joined the Oxford group in, in uh, Europe. And the Oxford group had, uh, had a uh, 
four steps to try to get, four or five steps to try to get you into a different relationship with God. And they were trying to live on first century Christianity principles before it was, before it was written down. How you would live if you had seen or been around Jesus and what the principles that you would have lived, how you would have lived that Christian life. And so they, uh, they weren't trying to solve uh, alcoholism. They were trying to live a spiritual life. They had restitution, they had confession of sins, they had witnessing, they had surrender, uh, very similar to some of our steps. Um, then uh, he went to that, uh, uh, to that in uh, the Oxford group in Europe, and then he went to Reverend Shoemaker at the Calvary Church. And he was able to get a relationship with God which he didn't have before. And he had uh, grown up with uh, a man named Ebby Thatcher, who was from Albany. And they used to go to this lake in Vermont in the summers when they were teenagers. And Bill Wilson was there, Lois, Lois Smith, who, uh, Lois, uh, I can't remember her maiden name. And they were all, they were all friends. And they all knew each other. And Abby and Bill became uh, big drinking buddies. And uh, uh, Roland uh, knew these people. And when uh, Abby Thatcher was arrested and going to be put in an asylum or locked away, in uh, 1934, Roland was sober. And his best friend was the judge's son in Vermont. And they were in the Oxford group. And they went up to rescue Abby. And the judge says, we'll give you Ebby as long as you take him out of the state and don't let him come back. Now, Ebby was in trouble for getting drunk and driving into somebody's house. <laughs> and then he, uh, he also shot up the neighborhood. Ebby was in bad shape. And so uh, Ebby, they took Ebby to the Calvary Church with Reverend Shoemaker. And Ebby, uh, after 60 days, he worked the steps and he was sober. So how many days does it take to go to witness somebody? The maximum is 60 days, if you look at Ebby. And why did he go? Well, they said, if you're going to if you're gonna keep this spiritual change, you have to go and witness to somebody who needs help. So he thought of Bill W. And we read Bill's story where Bill's in the kitchen with the booze, uh, all enough to last a day. And he's drinking in the kitchen when Ebby comes in, and Ebby was sober. And the Oxford program. Oxford group had a spiritual solution and a spiritual program. And Bill knew what was wrong with him from Dr. Uh, Silkworth, right? He knew he had an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind, but he didn't know how, what to do. There was no hope for him. And Ebby came and Ebby was sober. And so Bill uh, listened to Ebby and they, you know, he had a lot of problems with God. And he, uh, he listened to Ebby and then he went back, he, he got drunk, he ended up in the hospital. Ebby came and talked to him again, and that's when Bill uh, said, if there is a God, I will, I will, uh, uh, I'm willing to believe that there is a God that can help me. That was nice of Bill. He's dying. And then he had what was considered a spiritual experience. He thought he saw lights in the room and it changed him. It had to be so powerful because Sandy Beach says that was the, the big bang in AA. Something happened to this man in the hospital that was enough to make him want, right after he worked the steps, his immediate thoughts, if you read Bill's story again, was how he could help other alcoholics. 
probably could go around. He was a transformed, self-centered person. Somebody went, and he could not stop but give it away. And the, anal the analogy I think of is, uh, like I've said before, Saul on the Damascus Road. Because Saul was, uh, he was separated from God. He, was, uh, he wasn't practicing uh, uh, spiritual principles. And God uh, uh, talked to him on the Damascus Highway and said, I want you to change, right? And he said to, to uh, Saul, if you do these things, you will change and you will become Paul. And so if we do these things, we get transformed. And so Bill W. had this experience. And then, you know, he worked uh, for six months with alcoholics. Couldn't keep anybody sober, but he stayed sober. He used to preach to him. Uh, that didn't work. And Silkworth said, tell him about your experience. And then told him about the solution. Lois told him, well, at least you're sober. So it's helped you. And then he goes to Akron. And this deal fell through to take over a, a company and be a success again, which means we wouldn't be here today because Bill would have back being number one guy. And he was defeated again. He wanted to go into the bar because they were playing uh, nice music. See if you believe that one. He did. He crossed the threshold. So there were two, two, two powerful moments where God made his move. One was his experience in the hospital. And the second was when he crossed the threshold he describes the thought came that this was not a good idea and that I should go and talk to another alcoholic. Now, those are the thoughts that come from God. That's God consciousness. And then he found uh, uh, Dr. Bob, but Dr. Bob was, of course, drunk, passed out on the floor in his home, so they couldn't meet till the next day. He called, he called uh, Henrietta Cyberling, got her number. She was in the Oxford group. Dr. Bob was in the Oxford group but couldn't stop drinking and his wife was in the Oxford group and his wife and Henrietta Cyber who actually prayed had been praying every day for the last three weeks that somebody would come and talk to Dr. Bob think about that so Dr. Bob said I'll give you 10 minutes you know he's an alcoholic he's dying they told him they had somebody that wanted to talk to him so you know it was nice of him he gave him 10 minutes they talked for four hours and wow. and what what he said was it was the first time that somebody had actually told him about the allergy of the body, the obsession of mind, because Dr. Bob thought he was just a sinful, weak man and that he, you know, he deserved everything bad that happened to him because he was just a sinner, but he was just misdirected. He just had the wrong director. It was him and not God. And then Dr. Bob had our first relapse. He, uh, he and... Uh, Bill were in Akron, and then after a week or two, he went to the AMA convention, and of course, he, he, his wife said, don't let him go, Bill. He's going to get drunk. He gets drunk all the time, and Bill says, well, we can't lock him up, you know, and then he did get drunk, and uh, he got made it home. He went to the nurse's house. He had to do the surgery. Uh, Dr. Bob was a rear-end doctor, so we got our program from a, a doctor operated on people's rear ends and a shyster lawyer stockbroker. And that's how we came to be. And Dr. Bob, they gave him some beer that morning, and then he went and did the surgery. Then he didn't come home. They thought he's drunk again. Oh, my. But he went around. He made amends. He went around. Oh, everybody told him he was an alcoholic and what he was going to do, and then he never drank again. And that's June 10th, and that's the day we say was AA's anniversary. Powerful stuff. So... Sorry I went a little too long, but...
every time I think about how we're here today and all the, quote, coincidences, which is God performing a miracle anonymous 